0: You're listening to the Winter of Discontent podcast. It's taken me until season four to realise I can abbreviate this to WODPOD. I've just set up a Buy Me A Coffee account for people who want to support the work we're doing and help us with sourcing some of the contemporary accounts, newspapers, magazine articles, etc. that we need to tell our story. Plus, it's not widely known, but the whole show is recorded on an iPhone. So the equipment seriously needs upgrading. So if you'd like to be a supporter, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash WODPOD, W-O-D-P-O-D, and leave a tip. It's not a subscription, just a one-off show of support. Anyway, on with the show. How are you doing, Mr. Grossman? I'm fine, thank you, Todd. Hey, this is, uh, you are the star of the show tonight. Yes, thank I you. Think and right. you deserve to be. Thank you, the Beatles are the star of the show. <laughs> the Beatles' words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable.
1: Good morning. twenty-nine-nine. Yeah, no. Nine, eight, seven, roll six, 20, five, nine, four, twenty-nine. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions. You know, we're coming out. It's like it's like that we're like we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And it's what we're going through.
0: Hello and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick, join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. we're back for season four the breaks between seasons are getting longer but so are the episodes i try to make each one informative and entertaining in its own right so thanks for your patience my podcast recommendation only a northern song a fantastic Beatles podcast telling their story using archived material and very rare audio. It seems to be only available on Podbean, but check it out, it's really great. We're now at January 7th, 1969, and the Get Back project is still, to all intents and purposes, on course. Yesterday's rehearsal had not gone as well as they would have hoped. Old wounds had begun to open up between Paul and George, not helped by John's apparent lack of leadership. After three days rehearsal, they had almost complete versions of I've Got A Feeling, Don't Let Me Down and the one after 9.09. Plus, they learnt basic versions of Maxwell's Silverhammer," Two Of Us, All Things Must Pass and at the end of a very hard day, they quickly got to grips with She Came In Through The Bathroom Window. The latter song ended yesterday's rehearsal on a high And although Paul is unsure whether this will be suitable for the live show, he seems to now have an idea of the type of material that might inspire the band to perform. More about that in the coming season. We now have 29 episodes of bingeable material covering three days of rehearsal, with I believe some new discoveries along the way. Please feel free to listen through in order or selectively as you see fit. For those of you who just want a quick recap, here is a summary of episode 29. As we rejoin the Beatles, Paul is offering to teach the band a new song. As Ringo taps along to the rhythm, George and John follow Paul's bassline fairly well. The song seems to emerge almost fully formed as a band performance. Once again Paul simultaneously directs the drumming and the guitar playing, although George improvises quite well around the familiar chord sequence. It's like Diana, Paul explaining where the idea came from. George continues, as he has done all afternoon, rocking his wah-wah pedal back and forth as he plays. John, also inspired, plays some lead guitar during the choruses. George, without prompting, finds a harmony line to sing with Paul, although he doesn't yet know the words, but they all recognise that the song has potential. It's over in just a few minutes. But after the fraught rehearsals for Don't Let Me Down and then a run through of two of us that dissolved into an argument and after George lost interest in rehearsing his own composition, All Things Must Pass the Beatles embraced this new song with every bit of enthusiasm that was lacking throughout the day. So fired up is John that he leads the band through another run through just as Paul is looking to finish for the day. It is apparent that with material they can believe in, the Beatles become a great band once more. What is going to be difficult is maintaining that energy until the concert. John asks Mal if he has the words to Across the Universe yet, clearly hoping this will excuse him from writing anything else. Mal explains that he hasn't, but Apple managing director Peter Brown is sourcing them from Dick James Music. Paul can be heard chanting, carry that weight, perhaps fired up by the renewed energy of the final bit of rehearsing. Once again, Michael tries to broach the question of staging the show, but doesn't get anywhere. Talking to Tony Richmond, Michael asks if he can see any colour rushes in the morning. At this point, we learn they have 18 hours worth of footage in the can so far. As George is talking to Mal, the boom mic is clearly moved in their direction. George resorts to a gibberish, rhubarb, rhubarb to obscure their conversation. But we do learn that Mal has his parents staying with him, and that Michael and Tony are going upstairs for a meeting. As we listen to the crew packing up for the day, someone comments, It's a wrap, and the tape is switched off. And so to January 7th, 1969. Once again, the four Beatles make their way onto the Twickenham soundstage between 10 and 11. First Paul, then Ringo, then George, and eventually John. Photos and footage from this early part of the day show that Yoko was not present. Although she does join them later, braving London's damp, but not too chilly weather. Predictions for this month had forecast much colder, icy weather but areas of low pressure became slow moving to the west of Ireland and drove the more severe weather fronts out to sea. Instead, the UK was treated to mild southerlies and southwesterlies, making the potential for some kind of outdoor performance in England a viable alternative to the heat of Sabratha, should anyone suggest it. Of course, we don't know exactly how the Beatles spent the previous evening. Ringo most likely returned to Maureen and the children and flicked through the channels. John and Yoko returned to Kenwood, Paul to St. John's Wood. George returned to Kinfauns, and Charlotte, although he may have spent time with the two Hare Krishna devotees who had sat together so patiently all through the afternoon. One thing we can speculate about is what Paul watched on TV that night, or at very least we can assume he read the TV listing in the Radio Times for it. The High Chaparral was a Western TV show that ran between 1967 and 1971. Set in the 1870s, it starred Leif Ferrickson and Cameron Mitchell. It told the story of Big John Cannon and his brother Buck and their cattle ranch in the Arizona desert near the Mexican border. The episode aired in the UK on the 6th of January was titled North to Tucson and apparently spelled adventure in the Arizona Territory that locale would be foremost in Paul's mind when looking for lyrical ideas later on. Other TV highlights on this night? The Borderers, a historical drama set in 16th century Scotland starring Michael Gambon and Ian Cuthbertson. The Television Doctor, an episode entitled Poison, which chronicled the efforts of a team at a London hospital to save the life of a child who'd swallowed 40 tablets. Wild Wild Women, a sitcom featuring Barbara Windsor, with a small part played by the recently dearly departed Anna Karen. Ringo may have tuned in to a repeat of Tony Hancock's classic Blood Donor episode, shown as a tribute following the comic actor's tragic death by suicide, aged just 44 in June of 1968. It's Marty, featuring Marty Feldman, ably supported by comedian John Junkin who had appeared with the Beatles in their Hard Day's Night movie. Michael may have taken an interest in the episode of Made in Britain which focused on Britain's second largest export Scotch whisky. While George would have taken an interest in Malcolm McGridge's series A Life of Christ 2. However, after late-night line-up, British TV would have closed down before midnight, leaving the usually nocturnal Beatles to fill their time in other ways, which may explain how new material from both Paul and George would arrive most mornings during these rehearsals. This morning's headlines courtesy of the Daily Mirror, Glyn Johns' paper of choice. De Gaulle stops Israel's Arms Supplies. As details emerged about 1967's Six-Day War, France, who had been Chief Weapon Supplier to Israel, imposed an embargo on future arms sales to the country. Eventually this would lead to protests with 15,000 students taking to the streets outside of the French Embassy in Tel Aviv. A story about a doctor who used a patient as a pusher for his drug racket. And the tale of a gunman who tried to free his child bride. But tucked away on page 24, despite it being yesterday's front page news, the Ariana afghan Airlines crash scene near Gatwick Airport was investigated and the black box discovered. The subsequent investigation concluded that pilot error had caused the crash, not least of which was the decision to land in fog-bound Gatwick when the weather at Heathrow or Stansted was much clearer. At the time, British aircraft would not have been allowed to land in such poor visibility, but foreign aircraft were governed by different rules. As a result, the pilot mistook a light on approach to landing, for one at the far end of the runway, and approached the airport far too low. Only when the aircraft reached 400 feet did the crew realise their mistake, and attempt to pull the craft out of its descent, but it was too late. Now, as the tape begins, Paul and Ringo are already present, so let's rejoin the Beatles and the crew at Twickenham for day four of the Get Back sessions. Someone in the background is shaking a tambourine. Roll 50, roll 50. A camera. The boom mic swings over to Paul running through a new composition. He's just got one verse so far. The bridge section is evolving as he's playing. Musically, all the ideas are already present, including the ending. Trying to vocalize ideas for a second verse. It's an intriguing insight into his composing process. Oh, Paul then routines golden slumbers as he did yesterday. throat needs to warm up.
1: To get back home
0: just thought of this or worked it out in advance, Carry That Weight has now evolved into a chorus for Golden Slumbers, as opposed to a standalone song. Now that Paul seems to have joined the separate song ideas for Golden Slumbers and Carry That Weight into one piece, perhaps at this very moment, it seems like an opportune time to look at the origins of both songs. The lyrics to Golden Slumbers, as Paul will go on to explain later in the sessions, are not his own. The story goes that on a visit to his father and stepmother's house in Heswall, Cheshire, in the summer of 1968, Paul happened upon a songbook propped up at the family piano. Paul's father Jim had learned the piano by ear as a young man, as had Paul, and now Paul's stepsister Ruth was taking lessons. Paul liked the words to a piece called Cradle Song, Being unable to read music, he made up his own tune. As can be seen in the Get Back documentary, Paul does actually record the tune, so his explanation for using the nursery rhyme written by Thomas Decker, a contemporary of Shakespeare, has been simplified and embellished over the years. It would, of course, form the central part of the Abbey Road medley. In fact, the chord sequence in the verse, A minor 7th, D minor G seventh C is reused in Paul's song, You Never Give Me Your Money, suggesting that this latter tune was intentionally composed to be part of a longer piece. Carry That Weight by contrast has already been played to the Beatles as a potential standalone composition intended for Ringo. Paul improvised a few different verses on the fly, but now seems to have decided to use it as a chorus for Golden Slumbers. It fits nicely with the verse chords in the key of C and the bridge, Golden Slumbers section, alternating the chords F to C, creating tension When it finally comes, Carry That Weight's alternating 1 and 5 chords C to G and back feel like a release of that tension. Written as a chant and reminiscent of the end of Hey Jude, Carry That Weight is intended to be sung by a rowdy chorus of voices which in the end the Beatles, minus Lennon but featuring Starr, would do their best to emulate. Returning to the Long and Winding Road, it's easy to imagine how Paul constructs songs out of very different musical segments. The Long and Winding Road could have ended up connected to Golden Slumbers or carry that weight, or even been included in the Long Medley on Abbey Road later that year. George has arrived, talking to Glynn, though it's unintelligible. Mainly words like drums and plugged in suggest they're talking about recording equipment. Paul now runs through the castle of the King of the Birds. asking Mal to leave a message with Ken Mansfield, head of Apple Records in the US, not forgetting to wish him a happy new year. It sounds like they think Ken may have the business card of some unidentified person. George wants Mal to ask that person how Ringo's drums are getting along. It's not clear what this refers to. Ringo follows on with a comment which I can't quite get. It may relate to what George is talking about. Thanks for those, but I've done one myself. Ken Mansfield was recruited as US Manager of Apple Records in 1968. By January of 1969, he was operating out of the Apple offices at 3 Savile Row and was therefore perfectly placed to witness the Beatles' rooftop performance in person. His distinctive white overcoat is prominent in the Let It Be and Get Back films. Ken got his start in music during the folk boom of the early 1960s. As a college student, he joined his fraternity's folk band, much in the same way that British teenagers had formed skiffle groups. Initially, they played for just beer and pizza, but quickly graduated to clubs and even concerts being promoted by a talent agency in Beverly Hills. As rising stars, Ken and the band were able to rub shoulders with influential people in the industry. An executive from Capitol Records approached Ken and sponsored his application for an interview there. He secured the job and by some extraordinary good fortune was set to work with the Beatles on their US tour of 1965. They hit it off straight away. As Ken describes it he was A young guy in my 20s with a suntan, a Cadillac convertible, a house up on the Hollywood Hills, everything they had grown up reading about in Liverpool. In a way they were just as fascinated with me as I was with them. When the Beatles returned to America in 1966 They worked together again. He clearly made an impression. When the Beatles formed Apple in 1968, Ken Mansfield was their obvious choice to set up and run the US arm of their record company. They liked him because he was young and very much one of them. Everyone they worked with, the board of EMI or the chairman of Capitol Records wore suits, had grey hair and were in their 60s. For their part, the Beatles were slightly in awe of the cool but professional American. As Ringo put it, We didn't really have much to do, so we would sit around and think of ways of how we were going to impress you, Ken.
1: Did you see the cream? After
0: Mel checks there's enough sugar in their tea, George brings up the cream documentary that they discussed yesterday. Once again, the criticisms from Ringo, George, and Mel are about the editing of the film. Ringo repeats that he only saw bits of the show but kept switching over to Rona Martin's laughing. He describes the editing style as similar to what they did with Arthur Brown. Presumably, the promotional clip for Fire. Arthur Brown released Fire in June of 1968. It reached number one in the August of that year. An unusual lineup of Brown on vocals, Vincent Crane on organ, and Drakon Theaker on drums. There were no guitars or bass on the record, although Crane arranged a brass overdub. Brown was discovered by Pete Townsend of The Who, who got them a deal with Track Records. And he's credited as associate producer. The promo clip for Fire, which is widely available, isn't really as Ringo describes. There may be another performance he's thinking of. But there is a performance by Joe Cocker singing with a little help from my friends that is similar to the Cream film. So it's possible he might be thinking of that.
1: It was
0: George criticises the intercutting of older interviews, clearly from earlier in the year. Paul, after making some goonish noises, starts playing through the hits. Well, Lady Madonna, to be precise.
1: was uh, funny that i keep changing from laughing. Yeah, it's Aussie, isn't he? They Check it? Up. The other time, Aussie, then Ginger had a big bandana on his head. Then he had his um, like, hair yeah, Michael. He had it like a plastic. Yeah, he, really had a <laughs> <laughs> he had a pile <laughs> of so, so, great,
0: yeah. Ringo talks about the juxtaposition of switching from Ruth Buzzy on Laughing to Ginger Baker and then noticing the continuity errors. It
1: was What we do is tell me a little cymbals. So this is ride, man. If I want a big roll, I've got a little, get them both! <laughs> 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 I, uh, I don't about what he used, to, he used to. He used to practice, but he hasn't practiced for years. And do uh, Like, the sort of things that he used to practice were just like, digger, 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 digger. instead of just on the slur and it pulls, yeah. diggle, diggle, diggle. Then if you do it round, they get to get diggle, So it's all like hard. Oh. Yeah. But, but that's um, what they do, they, they get either flams or triplets. And, then, and that's basically what they use. If so you don't just do it all round round. If you do it like that, and then do it like that, a, yeah. on you have to like those big tom-toms to get in there. You know, uh, you know, and, yeah. you know the sound.
0: Michael is part of the conversation, but off mic. Ringo and George discuss Ginger Baker's interview where he discusses drum technique. Interesting to hear Ringo use the right terminology for different techniques. Sulpy has this as Ringo being defensive, but I don't think that's the case.
1: You wired up today? Very, very roughly. I've uh, got half the mics I need, that's all. Yeah. I've got yeah, we'll get uh, we'll get a better sound. Be I've uh, oh, got a uh, recorder, yeah? Well, oh, I thought they'll yeah, talk. All I'm missing now is a George state, can't you plug into that. We might, I'm hoping to get Apple to send me out a mono machine because that's all we need for this. Um, but I could plug it up.
0: Tape cuts. Ringo talks to Glyn to ask if they'll be able to record anything today. Glyn isn't ready yet. He needs a recorder and doesn't want to use George's 8 tracks strangely. Paul is still improvising, George not too taken with the smell of Michael's cigar. Ringo agrees. This
1: cigar is not steep.
0: Tape cuts. This is Roll 51, a camera. Unusually we get a description of where everyone is from this slate. The three are George Ringo and Mal. They seem to be talking about a photographer, perhaps Ethan Russell. Ringo thinks they were talking about someone they met when they went to the docks. Presumably, Ringo's referring to the Mad Day Out photo shoot on July twenty eighth, nineteen sixty eight. Mal says no, but he's seen a lot of his stuff and he's very good, and he's a nice guy. We need some stills, says Mal. Ringo interjects, Beatles book, having commented on the third that there were no new pictures in it.
1: Well, he's, I've seen a lot of his stuff. But he's good, you know. He's a nice guy. Isn't he? We need some stuff. They take you know, conversation as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you get, apparently, you unconsciously, whenever you're going to talk about anything, you don't want to record it, you're doing that, or like they say that whenever yeah. you uh, think about that, no, that's what you're doing. It's just that sometimes there may be like a good bit of film, and you just yeah. suddenly say, ah, fuck off, and yeah. no, yeah. yeah. really i bleep it to spoil this, and something like, like a bit of musical, It's just, Oh yeah. other
0: conversational reasons. George's still wondering why they're taping all their conversations, though he states that it's just because he worries a stray expletive might spoil a good bit of film. We now hear that Mal has seen the colour rushes in the morning.
1: <laughs> it looks great, well, the colours look lovely, didn't it? You see, yeah, rushes. Rushes, yeah. yeah. It's, the colours nice. it's a great shot, too. Yeah.
0: As Paul runs through bathroom window, they sing along and Ringo irreverently plays with the words. Is
1: Joe, the for coming. He comes up at lunchtime. Um, at lunchtime. What are they doing before then? Yeah, well, tell him to go out to our house before lunchtime. Yeah, okay. Why does he come at lunchtime? He brings macrobiotics up uh, to John Yoko. Well, tell him He's to lying. go to our house and there's something, uh... A wooden case of an amplifier that he could pick up from Margaret's and he can take it in it's box back to Alex. I got a Fisher know. amp, you know, which is like, I don't know if you've seen the one, Peter Asher's got one in his room. In the, yeah, the, just yeah. an amp for... Um, records, but I get buzzing through his speakers because it's loud, so I've got this big solid stage one, and it comes in one package, the other package has got a box, like a wooden box that it, the amp slides in so it looks nice, but it's, it must have been in a warehouse somewhere and got soaking and it's all the wood, it's moldy. So pick up the amp and the... Uh... Oh, they can leave the amp, just pick up the wooden case off it, which uh, Margaret will know where he could get that before lunch, Mal, and he could take it in this afternoon.
0: Some new names. Joe the chauffeur, we've heard before. But now we learn one of his jobs is to supply John and Yoko with their macrobiotic meals. George has an errand for him. In 1966, the Reader's Digest ran a cover story by Dr. Frederick Stair, a professor of nutrition at Harvard University, entitled Macrobiotics, a hippie diet that's killing our kids. It was a reactionary response to what was seen as a most un-American food craze. The concerns raised by the article were enough to cause the FBI to visit Irma Paul's macrobiotic bookshop on 5th Avenue, in New York, and to see several books and pamphlets. Paul was instructed not to sell any books until the investigation was completed. When the FBI did return, it was to remove all of the books from the store and incinerate them. Such was the moral panic at the time. The macrobiotic diet wasn't new. It was first popularized in Japan by George Osawa, who learned of the diet while seriously ill as a child with tuberculosis, from Sagan Ishizuka, a high-ranking army doctor concerned at the adoption of a Western diet in Japan. The term macrobiotic is even older and means long life and is found in the writings of Hippocrates in the 4th century BC. By the 1950s, Osawa's teachings had begun to influence Western culture, particularly in North America. Craig Sams was introduced to the macrobiotic diet while at university in Philadelphia. By February of 1966, he was sufficiently interested to visit Paradox in New York, the first macrobiotic restaurant in the United States. At the time, one of the waitresses working there was none other than Yoko Ono. Sams was sufficiently inspired to make plans to open his own restaurant in London when he graduated. That restaurant, Seed, first opened in 1968. The concept was as organic as the food, low tables made from electrical cable reels, cushions not chairs and a communal dining experience where clients shared tables. Musicians greeted customers in the entrance hall. Very quickly it became an attractive haunt for celebrities. Terence Stamp, John and Yoko, later Mark Bolan. This is where he met Mickey Finn. Bands arriving late back into London from performing in the suburbs would often stop by and Seed would stay open into the early hours to serve them. The restaurant had a free meal policy which meant you could get a generous portion of brown rice and vegetables whether you were able to pay or not. Craig Sams unfortunately encountered visa issues while in Britain and had to return to the US but his brother Greg took over the running of the restaurant. Greg himself was an inspirational figure having been wheelchair-bound since falling from a tree while at the University of Berkeley. It is this Greg that John refers to in his 1968 comic cartoon about the diet, mentioned in episode one. Seed's new premises in a hotel basement between Notting Hill and Paddington would have been the destination every day for Joe the chauffeur to collect John and Yoko's macrobiotic meals. The switch to this diet was clearly Yoko's influence on John. It was based on organic grains, brown rice, barley oats and buckwheat, organic fruit and vegetables, soups, vegetables, seaweed, beans, chickpeas and miso. No vitamin supplements, no processed foods, no plastic containers. Drinks should be water or tea, no caffeine. Water was purified even for cooking and the food preparation was expected to be done in a calm environment. The diner would also be required to chew the food until liquefied before swallowing. John and Yoko's friendship with Greg and strict adherence to the diet led to one bizarre tale which Greg likes to tell. One time Yoko needed a blood transfusion but only wanted vegetarian blood. Greg spent the day rounding up vegetarians and ferrying them to the hospital in John's Rolls Royce to see if they were a suitable match. John maintained his interest in the macrobiotic diet until his death, as he explained in his 1980 Playboy interview to David Sheff. We're mostly macrobiotic, but sometimes I take the family out for a pizza. Craig Sams went on to found the Whole Earth Food Store and Green and Black's Chocolate range. Yoko Ono will be 90 in 2023. We also learn that George has someone at his house called Margaret. This is his cleaner, as my bad impression of Patty will explain. In Esha, we had a wonderful cleaner called Margaret. Whenever we had to go to Liverpool to visit George's mother, she would have macaroni cheese ready when we got back. She used to love John Lennon visiting and would say to him, have you got any of those lovely pills? And John would give her an upper. Afterwards, she would vacuum like a maniac, very different from her normal self. She was adorable. She believed there was nothing beyond the sky and clouds, and the world was encased in a bubble. When she saw the moon and the men walking on it, she refused to believe it. Paul is in the background riffing off of someone saying either hesitation or agitation. Composing something on the spot. George is amused. Ringo engages with a member of the crew who likes to talk about football with him. Like the other Beatles, Ringo has no interest in the sport. Paul teases him, asking, Who's going to win the hockey? But the crew member takes it quite seriously. I don't know about hockey. Soccer's my game.
1: Every day he comes round and tells you about the football team. <laughs> I say they did it, eh? <laughs> they been, do they play every night? <laughs> I don't I think so. The no, way he just tells you about any team. Yes, it was Chelsea yesterday. Yeah, the hockey championship this year. Uh, Soccer's game. Yeah, drafts is mine.
0: Ringo is being sarcastic. He asked George. Who's going to win the cup? George is less polite in his response.
1: All right. You're going to win a duck, George? I don't, give a, I don't give a shit who wins. <laughs> 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 as long as I don't win it, I don't mind.
0: Ringo's still laying on the sarcasm here, which seems to be going right over his head. Unperturbed, the guy states he personally fancies Everton to win. Actually, it was Manchester City. It's a bit
1: like Lime Street Station. Reminds me a bit of Lime Street Station. Any stage.
0: Um, George comparing the soundstage to the Liverpool Railway Station at Lime Street, where Maggie May will never walk.
1: <laughs> uh, yesterday, Paul was saying something about the picture of us with Maharishi, did you say? Mm. And I was just doing messing around and I saw a big colour picture and I just looked at it. Yeah? And it's too much, it's so really yeah. great, that? Sure. You know, I'll have a look at it. You look alright. The one where we're all sitting around. The Henry Grossman one. Paul and Jane and John Sin are on the right. And there's Patty and me, you and Jenny, I think. Yeah. (laughs) And it's uh, just looking at at that side of it, they just don't have a clue what it is they're sitting there holding the fans for. It's too much (laughs) because I never know. I thought about it, Mm. you know, until I looked at Tilly's head, and there was the picture. (laughs) Especially uh, Paul and Jane and Sin—they just looked in agony,
0: (laughs) (laughs) and he was smiling. yeah. Ringo calling Maharishi Mahi. Henry Grossman shot the Beatles extensively between 1964 and 1968. Despite a background in classical music and portraiture, Henry, only a few years older than the Beatles themselves, developed an immediate rapport with the group. In addition to covering their initial appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show and the movie Locations of Help, Henry enjoyed unprecedented access and was invited into the Beatles' homes to photograph them informally with their friends and families. The photograph that Ringo was referring to was taken on their trip to meet the Maharishi in Bangor in Wales. and It features Paul and Jane, John and Cynthia, George and Patty and Ringo sitting next to Jenny Boyd. Because his wife Maureen had just given birth to his son Jason.
1: Went through it like a dose of salt.
0: Georgie's suggestion for a lyric.
1: <sighs> <sighs> Lenin's late again. Between ten and eleven That's the time. Rid of him.
0: Paul half jokingly complaining, "Lennon's late again." This isn't necessarily fair. Paul was late the first day. George was late on Monday. This is only the second time John has been last to arrive. Michael points that out too. Ringo, as Paul points out, hasn't been late. Paul calls him a pro. I'm never late. is everybody
1: else is late once. He's never late.
0: He's a bloody pro. Michael says he knows that because of his tap dancing on Friday. Hence Ringo's comments here. Slate 102. Well,
1: that's it, you see. You that, yeah.
0: I'm trying to get in touch with Ginger Rogers. When Ringo says in touch, Michael assumes through a medium for some reason.
1: Or Ginger Baker. <laughs> I didn't know she
0: died. No, she hasn't died. Oh, I know. <laughs>
1: Still standing by.
0: Paul puts on his bass and switches on his amp.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: George singing a line from bathroom window. One of the more successful rehearsals from yesterday. Ringo complains about the volume of Paul's amp at this early hour.
1: You're playing that bass again? <laughs> Pretty clean. Two big sort of marks there. Mm-hmm. Leaning in this. Bad boy, you know, playing bass. That is, bloody near your heart that, George, you know. <laughs> Too bloody near the heart for bruises.
0: Paul complaining that the Hoffner bass, which has no contouring at the back for comfort, has left two marks on his chest. Paul is going to improvise some new material in this next section, which really deserves its own episode. So we'll leave this for now. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.